welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. This two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, August 15th, we are studying Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. In today's text, Solomon continues to reflect on all that he has seen in his life, looking for wisdom in the midst of it. Within those reflections, Solomon speaks a key truth. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Tim. Talk to us in general about the book of Ecclesiastes, Pastor Heckman. It's one that we don't often hear from in the lectionary, maybe one that we don't read as much as Christians. What do we need to know about it, preparing to look at this text? Ecclesiastes falls into a category we call wisdom literature. There are a number of other books in the Bible. Uh, probably the one our hearers would be most familiar with is Proverbs, another one we don't really hear too much um, in our lectionary, but very important books. Uh, wisdom literature I would describe as a genre of revealing God's law through um, kind of short, concise statements of truth. We see a lot of that. In Proverbs, we also see a lot of it here in Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read through Ecclesiastes, it's a lot of the times we look at a book and we try to discern the structure uh, that helps us with interpretation. Um, Ecclesiastes doesn't have much of one. There's a lot of wisdom that Solomon wishes to share. Um, it's God revealing his law through these statements of wisdom and that's really what we get with the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so Solomon's the author. He refers to himself as the preacher um, in this book or the teacher. And just a couple things as far as the maybe some underlying points that help with the structure and understanding the entire book as a whole. Um, and then making sense of some of these little sections that are scattered throughout. So Solomon has two phrases that they're kind of like, if you think of a refrain in a song, that's something that keeps popping up over and over again. You keep coming back to it as a central theme in a song. That's how a couple phrases act in this book. The first one is, um, life is vanity of vanities. Now, some people take this to mean Solomon sees life as pointless. He's um, despairing of life itself, which is not true. He's really kind of pointing to the purposelessness of many of life's pursuits that are apart from God's will, uh, that don't have God as their foundation. They're not driven by a desire to please God. They're more trying to please yourself and find comfort and identity in your life apart from God. So that's where he's describing vanity of vanities as pointless pursuits because they are undertaken apart from God's will. And then there's another phrase um, he uses. He says, there's nothing new under the sun. So he's seen a lot in his lifetime as king 
um, of Israel, and he's, of course, the last king before the divided monarchy uh, in Israel. We talk about King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon, um, and so it's the kind of the third stage, you might say, of Israel's United Kingdom phase, and a lot has happened. So he's seen a lot, and he's reflecting on life, and he says there's a lot that happens over and over again in spite of our often sinful thirst for novelty. Um, that's another one of the pointless pursuits he tries to describe at particular parts of the book. He says, there's nothing new under the sun. God created the world a particular way, and if you can be at peace with that, the way God has ordered things, uh, sometimes we call that natural law, um, the things God has hardwired into the creation, so to speak, how things function. Um, when we can conform to and align with that, uh, the novelty that we seek in sinful ways um, becomes less important. Um, and that's one of the things he's pointing out. There's nothing new under the sun. Be content with what God has given you, what God's doing in the world. So those are two things that really uh, kind of undergird the rest of the book, I think. Um, it's, I think, one of those phrases when he opens the book with, in fact. Um, and then there's one other point I think that's good to keep in mind. Um, this is by the, by the theologian Horace Hummel. He makes this point in one of his works. Um, Solomon insists that no one can discern God's ultimate purposes, but can only discern the purposes which God has revealed to us. So what he's trying to say is, if you're trying to fully, thoroughly understand God, um, that's a vain, fruitless pursuit because God in his ultimate depths is unknowable. We talk about the hidden God versus the revealed God in some of our theology. And that's, I think, what Solomon is getting at with some of this book. If you try to understand why certain things happen, uh, why God does things a certain way, um, different things about God that he has not revealed himself, you're just going to be left frustrated, left with more questions. And I think the point is we need to live as um, what I call limited, dependent, submissive creatures who don't know everything about God because he is God and we're not him, obviously. But we know enough about God to know that he loves us. He created all things. He cares for all things. He's given us vocations to live out in the world, as Solomon encourages us to remember as well. But those those are a couple of just really important points that undergird this whole um, book, an important book in the, um, in the canon of Scripture. And I want to share one more quote, I think, uh, that's very helpful before I, um, before we move on to the text. This is Martin Luther in his introduction to Ecclesiastes. Um, <clears throat> he says, what is being condemned in this book, therefore, is not the creatures, so human beings, but the de depraved affection and desire of us men. This is what happens in all human efforts. When things come flowing in, boredom soon takes over. If they do not flow in, there is an insatiable desire to have them, and there is no peace. To reiterate, the point and purpose of this book is to instruct us so that with thanksgiving, we may use the things that are present and the creatures of God that are generously given to us and conferred upon us by the blessing of God. I just thought that was a great way to sum up uh, what are the central purposes of this book. So um, that's yeah. that's some really key things to keep in mind. Yeah, uh, Luther's had, I've, I've found Luther's comments helpful throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the thought that you shared there about using the things right now with thanksgiving, letting God take care of what is to come, 
And I think that's behind a lot of the vanity that Solomon sees. And I really appreciated the word that you used, limited, to describe the, the life that Solomon is commending in this book. We've talked about in other episodes about living as creatures of God, letting him be God, taking our place as his creature, and then finding joy in that role. I think the thought of limited is another helpful word to describe that, that we would not seek to be God and thus chase after vanity because we can't do that. Rather, receive that limited role that God has given as a gift and live live within that reality that he's given. So with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to the text. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That's our text for today. That is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. All right, Pastor Heckman, so there's some, there's some very interesting, challenging verses within this section. I'm not sure what binds it together, though I, I wonder if maybe that word righteousness that shows up a couple times at the, the first few sections helps us to get a, a handle on what's going on in this section. So let's let's jump in. Take us into those first couple of verses where Solomon says he's seen everything. He talks about a righteous man, a wicked man. What's what's he getting at in those first couple of verses? That first verse, uh, in my vain life I have seen everything, that really ties back to the vanity of vanities uh, verse that we see throughout the book. Again, he's not referring to in my pointless, useless, um, purpose, purposeless life, excuse me. Um, he's rather reflecting on uh, a lot of the empty pursuits he's had. Uh, we know that he asked God for wisdom when God asked him what he wanted, and he received a great deal of that. But Solomon also had um, many sins. He was a sinner. And so he's reflecting, I've seen a lot of things in my life, um, in my vain life, and uh, there's a lot of things I did that were not right, but now he's reflecting on, let me share some of this to instruct you so that perhaps you can 
avoid the sins that I am guilty of. Uh, so then he goes into, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And I thought a great phrase to sum this up is life isn't fair. <laughs> um, you know, Sounds when you, like uh, you tell your kids. Yes. <laughs> I have three children. I don't know if I've used that phrase exactly, but I've probably used a variation of it. Uh, and my parents probably said that to me. Yeah. Um, often I would get blamed for something that wasn't my fault growing up. And I thought life isn't fair or, you know, when, when it, he's basically trying to give you this truth that sometimes uh, when you are faithful, when uh, you do what you're supposed to, you are not rewarded, you have no accolades, things don't go perfectly for you, and yet on the flip side, you also see wicked people in the world doing wicked things and having apparent success, uh, prolonging their lives, gaining riches, possessions, fame, power, whatever it may be. And this is an extremely frustrating reality for many Christians because we think, uh, if I'm following the Lord, if I am... um, Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, um, why shouldn't why isn't life going differently? And so Solomon is, Solomon is reflecting on this fact that we live in a corrupt, sinful world where um, we don't understand why sinners prosper, but that's a reality of the world in which we live. We don't understand always why we suffer, but that's uh, as God's children, but that's also a reality. Um, so he's reflecting on that, and when he when he moves to the next portion, um, he's giving us kind of a sobering reminder in that first 15, but then verse 16, don't be overly righteous. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, so right that, that one that one is is a confusing turn of phrase. So help us with that one. Yeah. Um, so th- this comes below, there's actually a kind of a clarifying verse below, um, in, oh, let me see, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So those seem self-contradictory. Uh, don't be overly righteous, but you can't be righteous anyway. So what he's getting at here is, um, I think it's a direction towards humility. Don't consider yourself more righteous than someone else. Uh, so he's not talking about, isolating yourself and thinking of how righteous you are. He's saying, uh, in relation to the the people God has put around you, don't think you're more righteous than someone else, because as he's going to say in verse 20, you don't have any righteousness in yourself at all. Um, so why bother with that? Don't make yourself too wise and destroy yourself. Um, if true righteousness and wisdom um, are given from God, they are to be followed by humility, right? Because Thinking that you are wise in your own eyes is a great way to destroy yourself. Um, thinking you are righteous in your own eyes is a great way to destroy your faith because when you think that way, you're obviously turning away from complete dependence on God. As we said in the introduction, you're a creature um, and you start to think of yourself as I'm self-sufficient, I am autonomous, I don't need to live as a submissive, dependent creature. And boy, isn't that a, a characteristic of our culture now? Um, people think they are righteous and wise in their own eyes. And so there's a lot of great wisdom here that Solomon is sharing. Um, you'll destroy yourself if you think this way. And then be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. That's almost as, as confusing, too, because it sounds like when he says overly wicked, so I can be a little wicked. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying either. Um, 
if it's no sure protection, you know, to be self-righteous and overly wisdom, overly wise, um, extreme wickedness and um, foolishness is even more dangerous still because he says in verse 16, why should you destroy yourself? This rhetorical question, why would you want to do this? Um, and then he asks in verse 17, why should you die before your time? Um, so both are destructive, but it's a little more pointed in verse 17. So um, don't be wicked at all. But here's a, you know, I think an, another takeaway from this last phrase is sin has consequences. Um, sin, living in sin is not neutral. As one pastor told me, even uh, things like um, skipping church is not spiritually neutral. We, we do these things that are wicked um, and we think nothing bad is going to happen because I don't see immediate consequences. That's always the temptation. But Solomon is saying here, um, it, it, it might lead to um, very, very destructive things, the worst of which would be you know, the destruction of your faith. Um, so it's apt warnings. And then even just one more reflection on that phrase, life isn't fair. Um, when he says righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper, really, uh, you know, the phrase life isn't fair. I don't think it tells the whole story because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So fairness in terms of God's law would be eternal condemnation, um, death and complete separation from God. But God is unfair in the fact that he doesn't give us what he deserve, uh, what we deserve. Um, and as we'll get to in verse 20, even though there is not one righteous person and we deserve to be cut off from God, um, God gives us his righteousness. So it is fine to lament the prosper, the prosperity of wicked people, and um, the suffering of righteous people, but you also have to remember: any good thing we get is undeserved, and God gives those in abundance, uh, even when those frustrating things can cloud that out. I think that's what um, Psalm is trying to point us at here. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the way that you explained "be not overly righteous, don't make yourself too wise" was was helpful. It's not that Solomon's saying, well, just go ahead and sin a little bit. It doesn't matter. But rather the, the thought, especially as it's phrased in the second half of that verse, don't make yourself wise. Don't seek your own wisdom. Don't seek your own righteousness. If you do, that's vanity. Rather, let righteousness be given to you. Let wisdom be given to you by God, I'm trying to take those verses within the full counsel of God's Word in Holy Scripture. So... Mm -hmm. Help us then into the next the next verse, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What is that saying? Well, this is Solomon trying to bring us back in between the two extremes he described. Uh, so he doesn't want you to seek self-righteousness and consider yourself wise in your own eyes. He also doesn't want you to be overly wicked or wicked at all, really. Um, this is the, the medium we say between wisdom and folly, uh, human wisdom and folly, really. Um, he's encouraging us, really, don't um, despair of life. Don't remove yourself from the world thinking, well, I'm a sinner and the world is full of wickedness, the world is full of fools who are 
uh, vexing to Christians. It's very difficult to live faithfully. Maybe I ought to just disappear. No, he's saying um, take hold of this. Take hold of the vocations which God has given you. Um, keep working. Keep seeking opportunities to do the works God has prepared for you, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.11. He's prepared them from eternity, which is incredible. Um, wrap your mind around that one. Um but yet, at every moment, trust in the Lord completely because this is the faithful in-between that keeps you away from self-righteousness, but also from despair or even over wickedness where you say it doesn't matter. Um, we see, I, I, I thought of a verse in John 9 verse 4 that I think lines up fairly well with what Solomon says here. Uh, Jesus says, this is the the front part of the the man born blind and Jesus healing him, and he says to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So he's referring to the importance of remaining faithful um, to the tasks which God has given us before Christ returns. And so Solomon really, this is a I think it's a vocational verse where Solomon is saying, don't withhold your hand from the earthly tasks which God has given you. Creation is good. God has said as much. Um, the things that God has given you to do are good. Your life does not lack purpose or meaning. A lot of people in our modern day and age struggle with a lack of meaning and purpose in life. It leads to all kinds of terrible conditions, depression, uh, hopelessness, despair, thinking there's no point to it all. But Solomon takes us back and says, "With don't withhold it from your hand. Take hold of this. If you think of uh, we've got a little girl who, uh, Lily, who just turned one, and uh, she's learning to walk. And as she walks, she'll hold one of our fingers, and she's walking. Um, she can do it on her own, but she still clings, like squeezes to our finger and won't let go of it because she knows how important it is to to stick with us. And that that's the image I have is take hold of the good vocations God has given you, Um and there, there's actually a great deal of comfort in in that faithfulness, and I, that's what Solomon's pointing to us here as well. Mm, yeah, that's a very helpful explanation, Pastor Heckman. How about into to verse 19? These things are starting to sound a little more proverbial in this section, mm-hmm. where it's almost one verse stands alone. But I do think, again, righteousness is going to help us tie some of these things together. Uh, talk about verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So Solomon here is saying wisdom from God is far more advantageous and to be sought more than earthly power. Because if you if you have earthly power, but you don't have an ounce of wisdom for how to use it properly, that's getting back to what he said at the opening of this section, talking about why would you destroy your Do you want to destroy yourself? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a directive to say, seek out wisdom. There is a certain a certain power and wisdom, you might say, where it's taking um, the information that God has given us, the creation he's put us in, um, it's deriving um, knowledge from that and then putting it to godly use and saying, this is how I might use this to serve God. And um, and he's saying that's, that's far more effective, uh, far more valuable than any amount of earthly power you can get. Um, so I, th- I think one thing he's also strongly implying here is the corruption which often accompanies power, um, because a lot of rulers in the world rule through folly. They don't have wisdom. They have a lot of power in their hands, um, but they use it for sinful ends. 
wisdom takes takes what we've been given power riches whatever it may be and it says i'm going to use these for the ends that please the lord um and as solomon says in verse back in verse 15 this will not always yield uh quote unquote results or quote unquote success that's another big confusion we have um you know if i'm being wise why doesn't my life look better so to speak but this is an assurance that if you think wisdom is useless and you see people with power in the world, earthly power that's temporary, and you're tempted to go after that, refrain from that. We don't depend on that um, to solve our problems. It's a godly institution that God has put in place with the rulers of the world, um, but godly wisdom, which comes from his word, um, is to be desired more than earthly power and I think accomplishes God's purposes far more than earthly power ever could. And that's um, it's a very difficult thing to remember because we're very results-oriented people. We like seeing, again, there's all these really kind of vague, unhelpful, undefined words, words like progress and success, and uh, you define those so broadly in the world, but to pin it down to scriptures, you might just say success is, um, it's, it's given to us by God as righteousness, and then um, he works faithful responses in us, and that's all there is. It's not going to show in numbers or uh, gains in power or wealth, but um, it's far more important than earthly power. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's a little bit of autobiography there with Solomon reflecting on his own reign as king and, and the wisdom and how how much better that served him than any amount of power he might have had as as king in Jerusalem. And then just reflecting on that verse for our our day, I think a, a verse like this can can direct our prayers for our rulers that we would pray for them to have this godly wisdom. And, and even, like you were saying, there are these terms out there that are just sort of nebulous. Uh, you know, we hear them not really defined very properly. Even that term wisdom can, be, can become that in our, our popular context. So mm-hmm. to, to pray for true godly wisdom according to what God teaches in His Word is uh, something that, that I think you know, we can take and, and use from this text as, as we consider how to, to pray for our rulers still, as Scripture teaches us to do. Mm-hmm. So... We'll uh, keep looking at this text more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking to Pastor Joel Heckman this morning about Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 15th. We're studying Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 29 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we left off after verse 19. That takes us then to verse 20, which I think is a key verse within this section, within the book of Ecclesiastes, and really within the whole of God's Word. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Talk to us about this verse here in its context and throughout the whole of Scripture. Yes, so this is really the, I I would call it the fulcrum of this text. Uh, You might even call it the central Maybe the, not necessarily the central theme of the book, because there's a lot that goes on in this book, but it's the central thing to remember, even as you're getting all this wisdom poured onto you and you want to strive to follow that wisdom, the central thing to keep in mind is my righteousness is not my own. I don't achieve righteousness by doing the things that Solomon tells me to do. Um, there are numerous texts in the scripture that refer to this truth that we are inherently sinful. Romans 3, 10 through 20 is one of the central ones in Paul's treatment of righteousness that comes by faith and not by works. Um, I don't remember if that's our Reformation Day text or not. I I think it might be our epistle for that day in the three-year lectionary. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1 through 3, and then 143, verse 2, uh, reiterate this. Um, no one is righteous, not one. No one is good. 1 Corinthians 2.14 was a central verse for the Reformers as they treated righteousness um, as a subject. Uh, the sinful man, the natural man, does not comprehend the things of God, which is saying the only way you can believe and trust in in Christ as the the Lord of all creation, the Savior of the world, is if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what does Paul say? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Um, Proverbs 20 verse 9 is another uh, key text um, where he asks a kind of a rhetorical question. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? And the answer is, of course, no one. So Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter where it is, righteousness is spoken of as something that humans cannot achieve on their own, and that's exactly what um, Solomon is declaring here. And that's very countercultural because our listeners, I I no doubt have heard some variation of the phrase, people are basically good. Um, They believe... There's there's some sort of spark or, or little sliver of inherent goodness in people, and if you just give them enough of an opportunity to live out their life, and if you just push them in the right direction, they'll do what's right. And the scriptures completely dismantle that approach, uh, the harmful, dangerous, sinful attitude that we have some goodness in us. Uh, I, I forget the name of the heresy 
uh, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. We don't need to get into that, but that's to kind of show that it's been around for for centuries now. This um, this idea that people have some goodness in them. Solomon is saying that is not absolutely not the case. Um, any and all human pursuits of righteousness are vain and useless. Um, we are to turn away, as he said in verse. 15 from, or maybe, yeah, verse 15 from self-righteousness. We are to despair of our own ability to be right for, before God. Uh, but this is not, this is not meant to leave us in a state of despair uh, because the purpose of the law not only is to reveal God's will um, and to reveal our sinfulness and our failure to keep God's will, it's also to turn us toward God uh, for comfort because we know that even though we are not righteous, God is righteous. So this is where scripture also consistently throughout um, the Bible points us to Jesus as our source of righteousness. So 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, let me flip there because this is a key text as well talking about, okay, we're not righteous. What is our source of righteousness? So John says, uh, 2 verse 1, 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So again, this is not a concession or a um, kind of permission to say, well, you can't be righteous anyway, so why bother? He's saying you're not supposed to sin. That's a bad thing. But then he says, but if anyone does sin, which we will, and we are sinful, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he is our advocate with the Father. He is our he is the righteous one who alone is sinless. Um, so when Solomon says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, we say to the Lord Jesus is the only one who fits that category. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, again, a key verse in justification uh, we are justified by grace uh, before God, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where his grace comes to us. And then it says we have peace with God. Um, so not like a, a, as some people understand it, a sort of sense of tranquility that's not really tied to anything concrete. No, this is peace versus uh, being at war with God or being an enemy of God. We are no longer in that state because Jesus we talk about um, imputing his righteousness to us, uh, where he accomplishes that on the cross. He is the sacrifice for our sin. He atones for our sin. He rises from the grave to overcome the power of death. And then all the benefit of that, um, the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death, the resurrection that conquers death, that is imputed to us or, or given to us from an outside source uh, when God, through his word, brings us to faith, through the gift of holy baptism, the word with water gives us that righteousness of Jesus. So, And I love how the scripture describes it as a garment that God puts on us. So it's as though, um, you know, if you've ever been in, in cold weather and you go outside and you didn't bring a coat and you were supposed to, you, what does your body do to keep you warm? It starts shivering. Uh, and then someone, you know, kind who has their coat, gives it to you, places it over you. Uh, you don't grab it from them. You don't even know to ask for it. They give it to you and place it on you. That's the picture I get sometimes when I think of righteousness that comes from God. Um, so we are not basically good. We are inherently sinful. There's nothing good within humans on our own. 
Our hearts are sinful from the time we're conceived, as David says in Psalm 51. But Jesus is good. Um, He gives his goodness to us that we would be declared right before God, which is what we are by faith, and not just now for this life, but for all of eternity. As as someone, someone you know mentioned recently, your baptism isn't just a, a one-time thing that only has importance in this life. Your baptism and the righteousness it gives you is eternal. It has eternal consequences. Uh, we are always righteous before God because of that gift he's given us. And I mean, we, we could go on and on about this. Um, I think the Augsburg Confession is, I think it's Article 4 that talks about justification. That's, uh, I think, was it Luther that said the church rises and falls in this article or another one of our... That's generally what Article 4 is called by by Lutherans, Mm -hmm. I mean, especially now, the article Mm -hmm. on which the church stands or falls is Mm -hmm. justification by grace through faith. Right. Yeah. So I, I know that the uh, Solomon does not necessarily make this uh, as recurring a theme as, as some other things in this book, but I would take it as um, keep this com- completely at the forefront of your mind as you read through books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, even portions of Romans that talk about what does it mean to be a, a faithful Christian. Uh, I think that's Romans 12. You keep that in mind, but you always, always remember that uh, my righteousness is not defined by how good of a husband or a wife or mother or father or worker, whatever it is. It's defined by Jesus, um, and that's the foundation that we go into books like this with. Yeah, you you mentioned, Pastor Heckman, that these words from Solomon and throughout Scripture are not meant to leave us in a state of despair, and and yet I think within the context of our world, when when people hear, you know, no one is righteous, not even one, they think, well, what a what a downer, you know. Or we start the the worship service with confessing our sins. I, a poor miserable sinner, we are by nature sinful and unclean, and and people think, well, that that's gonna drive you to despair. You said that's that's not what's gonna happen. Talk. It struck me as you were saying that that actually it is it is thinking that you do have some kind of inherent goodness that will end up leading you to despair. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about how that, that might happen, how thinking you do have some kind of inherent goodness ultimately could lead you toward despair? Yeah, so it's the striving after uh, trying to feel good about yourself through your own works is really what one of the things the law guards against. Uh, people just want to feel good about themselves, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that the way to feel good about yourself, according to the world, is to do good. Uh, I see this on bumper stickers. I see this on shirts. These, Again, these vague phrases, do good, be good, be kind, all these things, and, and you want to stop them and say, first of all, what does it mean to be good? Second of all, why should I do that? Uh, but, but thirdly, what happens when I can't do that, uh, when I fail to do that inevitably? Um, and so you'll, you'll reach a point of despair when you try so hard to be good, you realize that I can never do enough. That's where the despair really comes in, uh, because the law is always, it's demanding. Um, it, it, it demands perfection because Jesus says, as your heavenly father is perfect, so you must be perfect. Uh, and he's not saying that's what you need to save yourself. He's trying to point us to the fact that you can't do that. Um, you will always have something that you could be better at, 
because you're a sinner, you will never be perfect. Um, you will always be inherently sinful in this life as you as you deal with that sinful nature. Um, there will always be some. You could always, you know, clean up one more thing around the house. You could always give a little bit more to charity. Uh, you could always volunteer one more day a week at the soup kitchen. You could always donate more of your money uh, to missionaries, or maybe quit your job and go do mission work. Things like that. Not that these things are bad, but where they become harmful, where they lead us to despair, is thinking, this is what I need to do to earn God's favor, and you will always, always be reminded that you have not done enough. Uh, it, it's like the, it's a treadmill is kind of what I describe it. You never catch up. Um, and that's, that's why the religions of the world are so empty, um, that they all teach that righteousness is climbing up this ladder to get to whatever false deity you're worshiping, and if you climb enough rungs in your life, maybe you'll reach it, but you have no idea. Um, there's no certainty in it. Uh, and for every rung you climb, you seem to fall down to because you're doing sinful things or you're failing to do good things. We call those um, sins of commission, where you commit sins, or sins of omission, where you don't do something that you ought to do. Um, and the, again, the despair comes from thinking you can find comfort and righteousness and things you do, and you will always be left with the law that tells you you haven't done enough. It will always, always demand more of you uh, because the law requires perfection to be fulfilled. And that's where you're taken to that point of despair, and Jesus says, you have not done this, you cannot do this, I have done it, and I give you my perfection. Um, and that's that's why you know you you hear about even even certain denominations in Christianity preach the law improperly by focusing on okay you've been saved you've come to faith uh, through the gift of Jesus and the word of God but now that's kind of on the back burner you got to focus on doing more and more and more good works and mm -hmm. that's how you um that's how you know you're saved uh, it again, it's not that good works have no place. This is another thing the, the reformers were very, very careful to explain uh, because people accused them of being something we call antinomian, of course, against the law. Uh, they would say, you're so focused on righteousness, you don't leave any place for living as a faithful Christian. And they say, no, it's about the proper division of law and gospel. If there's someone who is living uh, as Solomon says, excessively in excessive wickedness and they're unrepentant, they don't see any problem, they need the law, right? They need to say that this is bad, this hurts your faith, this, this hurts your neighbor. But if someone is committing these sins and they're trying to earn their own righteousness and they're in despair, that's where the gospel comes in and says, um, your sins are forgiven in Christ and it's not about your works as far as uh, righteousness before God, it's about the work of Jesus. So, uh, there's a kind of a long-winded answer about, uh, but 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 it's I mean it's so pertinent because even the most faithful of Christians will fall into this lie that the way to feel true comfort for your terrified conscience is to just do more good things. No, it's to to go to the cross and say I, a poor miserable sinner, and then hear that absolution, receive the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of your sins, um, to bury yourself in God's word and be surrounded by his promises that give us comfort. That's the way 
we find comfort not in self-righteousness. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The the despair is not going to be found in the truth that is revealed to us in the scriptures. God makes use of this truth to give us the true comfort of the gospel. We could spend a whole rest of the time together talking about the other end of that pendulum. If you don't if you don't believe what Solomon has here, you may fall into despair or or you could also go into pride. But maybe we'll save that for another another conversation. That's kind of a pendulum that people can go back and forth on. What mm-hmm. keeps you off of it and gives you true comfort is the reality that Solomon preaches here in, in coordination with what God gives in the gospel, the righteousness of Christ that comes by grace through faith. So that's a, a fantastic summary, not only of what's going on here, but throughout the whole of Scripture. Let's take a look at a few more things that Solomon has for us. The next couple of verses, verses 21 and 22, I find to be just very helpful wisdom uh, that Solomon gives to us, and, and applicable, beyond, applicable beyond the particular thing that he, he mentions about what you are saying. He says in 21 and 22, "...do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others." Take us into that wisdom. So two main things he's trying to give to his readers here. First, don't take the opinions of others too seriously, um, because your servant will curse you, uh, often unfairly, or or your acquaintance. Uh, And then the second, he's saying, uh, repent for the times that you have cursed others. Um, And then also reflect on that, thinking, the times I've cursed others... Has it really been a fair criticism? Has it really been a fair word that I've given? And that kind of brings you back to the words that other people say. Um, if you take them too seriously, if you take them to heart too much, there is um, there's a lack of joy. Your joy suffers, and uh, you will begin to think of yourself only in terms of what other people say versus in terms of what God has said about you. Um, so first, you're, you're reminded other people will curse you. Um, Don't take it to heart, because if we expect perfect behavior, perfect opinions of ourselves, we're naive. Um, People will say hurtful, false things about you. Um, And surely, again, the only lasting opinion that has any lasting significance about you is God's opinion of you. And he judges you truthfully and righteously according to his son Jesus. Um, And so we'd say, I am going to, again, this even ties back, I think, somewhat to verse 15 and 16, where um, where, where Solomon reflects a righteous person uh, suffers. One of the ways righteous people suffer is when they, again, do the right thing and people still speak ill of them, or um, they don't see eye to eye, uh, you know, especially we sometimes see this as pastors even, where we... Um, we, we make a decision in the church that is according to scriptures, you know, pastors teach about it, they have conversations, they take their time, and even uh, in some situations there will be people who just simply don't agree and might even have ill words for you. And it's not just pastors, it's, um, it's every single Christian. Um, so don't, don't take too seriously the opinions of others, especially when they're not tethered to scripture. Uh, your righteousness is in Jesus, not in the opinions of others. That's the mi- one first big point here. The second is you need to look in the mirror because you're a sinner. Um, for every ill word spoken of you, odds are you've spoken something against someone else, not a one-to-one ratio, obviously, but um, 
Jesus comments on this in Matthew 7, verse 3, where he's talking about um, before you uh, look at the log in another person's eye, take the speck out of your own eye. Um, so first, guard against your own hypocrisy because you are also a sinner. But also uh, remember that other people are sinners as well, and that sinful nature within them causes them to see things in a distorted way. Um, so the sinful nature plagues them. It doesn't mean they aren't responsible for their actions, but it still does mean um, you're a sinner dealing with another sinner, and they're going to be things that are spoken um, with without thought or without much thought, with a sinful choice of words um, spoken too quickly um, or spoken with sinful intent. But Solomon is saying, don't don't take to heart all those things. Uh, take to heart what is fair and scriptural. Um, deal with the things that aren't, but don't let that be the definition um, that you have for yourself. Let it be the words of God uh, that do that. Hmm. Yeah, the, the thing that I find I, that this is wisdom beyond what is said, and even the, the matter of the words, is just kind of sins in general. So don't don't get so offended when people sin against you to the effect that, you know, you hold a grudge or refuse to forgive and, and instead of praying the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And and the reason you can do that is because you you know you've sinned against them too. And so as you desire them to forgive you, so seek after forgiveness there. I mean, I think that relates to the matter of the Eighth Commandment comes into play about putting the best construction on our neighbor's words and actions that we don't we're not so ready to take offense and grow angry at them, but rather, I think it's Peter is the one who says that love covers a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. So not only in the matter of cursing, which certainly applies in all that you're saying, but just in general, when your neighbor has sinned against you, don't be surprised. Don't be so quick to be offended and hold a grudge, because you know who you are as a sinner too, and instead seek to live in, in forgiveness mutually with with the one who has sinned against you just as you want him to do for you when you sin against him. So, yeah, I mean, I, again, as I was reading that, getting ready for our conversation, I was like, that's that's good wisdom right there, Solomon. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> so so we've got about four minutes here, Pastor Heckman, and the, the rest of this, I will admit that some of this is, is a bit confusing, especially as he starts to talk in, in verse 26 and following about the woman whose heart is snares and nets, that this is more bitter than death. There's some language in here that I think is, at least is hard for me to understand. Help us to to see what Solomon is saying in this last section, because you were telling me maybe we need to take this together and, and take it that way. So help us to to see this last, last section, wrap things up in about four minutes here. Sure. So verse 20, verses 23 through 29, um, the references I, I used for uh, the reference books for preparation, uh, they took this section as a whole. Now, I, I think there are other commentators that split it up a little bit. Um, I know 23 through 25 could be split off where he talks about testing things by wisdom. Certain things are, are so deep. We were talking about the deep things of God. He doesn't reference that explicitly um, here when he says, uh, that which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? Um so he seeks the wisdom and searches out the scheme of things. I think he's referencing uh, when he says the scheme of things, going back to how God has created things to function and be. 
Solomon seeks to understand that. What is the way the world is supposed to be? Um, and some things are very frustrating because he doesn't understand them fully. Um, but to take this whole thing together, um, you know, you can do that. And some some commentators see it as Solomon trying to understand um, women, uh, the, the counterpart to man that God... Um, put in creation where we, we call men and women complementary, uh, not compliment like I'm saying something nice about you, but right. compliment in that um, they are a good match for each other, uh, a good um, fit for each other. Uh, as God says, um, Adam had, you know, he wanted someone fit for him. Um, so Solomon, uh, which, which is a little bit ironic in this passage where he says, um, you know, things like uh, a woman among all these and a thousand I have not found, um, or uh, something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. You remember that Solomon took 700 wives and I believe 300 concubines. So that's something where his wisdom, um, he was he was thinking with earthly wisdom there. Um, and this might be partially a reflection on where he says the wickedness of folly in verse 25 and the foolishness that is madness. This might be partially a, re a reflection on his own life where he said, I married these women primarily out of um, political motivation where he wanted to ally himself with pagan leaders to fortify his kingdom. Um, and so he gave himself over to pagan wives who led him into idolatry, which introduced idolatry into the kingdom of Israel and stayed as a poison in the kingdom for years and years. Um, so as a whole, I think you you can take this as Solomon trying to understand how uh, to find a good, godly, pleasing woman. Uh, but I think if you isolate it to that, you're missing his larger point. And I think that's summed up in verse 29. Uh, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. So there he doesn't isolate it to women. He just uses man as a collective term for all people. They have sought out many schemes, and that reflects the teaching on original sin, inherent sin. Um, God creates man, and then, um, you know, as soon as Adam and Eve fall into sin, that's a disease that an illness that passes from generation to generation, um, that inherent sinfulness. Um, and so you you might take the portion on women, um, especially in verse 28, one man among a thousand I found, a woman among all these I have not found. Uh, he's really saying there it's very difficult to find a man or woman that is faithful. So be very careful um, about how you uh, interact with men and women. Uh, I think he's just making a point here that it's very difficult to find a faithful one. Um, and something more bitter than death is is trying to find a woman who is pleasing in worldly standards, but not as pleasing is not pleasing in God's eyes. Uh, we have this uh, portion of our confirmation program where um, we have uh, two confirmands pair up, and we have a couple in the church agree to sit down with them over a meal and talk about um, the blessings and the challenges of marriage. And one of the reflection activities we have them do is think of five characteristics that you wish to have in your future spouse. Um, 
And so you you would think about uh, they they're they're Christian, obviously. That's that's the first one you want. Uh, but you also might think they um, they're patient, they're kind, all these fruits of the spirit that Paul describes. And this is probably the underlying thing that Solomon is getting at. It's very difficult to find someone like that. So be particular about the men and women with whom you associate, uh, because it's very easy to become corrupted. As Paul says, uh, bad company corrupts good character. Um, so it it's it's not a small thing, the people with whom you associate. And it's not that you can't associate with sinners or people who um, aren't, you know, the kind of people you might want to marry. But um, be very careful about the people with whom you associate. And then also um, remember that all people, not just women, that's not what Solomon is not isolating women as the epitome of sin. He says, all man have sought out many schemes. And this, again, just brings us back around to, um, you know, your righteousness is in Christ. Uh, you have sought out many schemes, and even you you can find a proper man or a proper woman. Um, that doesn't mean you are um, a perfect person uh, because you have found this. It means, again, your righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Just be very careful about the people with whom you interact because, again, Solomon, reflecting on his own life, uh, made decisions that were sinful, interacted with people he should not have interacted with, or maybe... Um, you know, had a relationship with them that was sinful. Uh, and that's really the heart of a lot of what he says in this book, I believe, um, is born out of this is what you should not do because I did it, and I can tell you the consequences are dire, they're harmful. Yeah. doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive these sins. It just means that um, there are consequences for these things, lest you think relationships are just careless things. Um, so we pray for godly husbands, godly wives. We pray for godly friends. We pray for discernment and in interacting um, with people in the world, especially people who are not Christians, that we would still be faithful witness to them, um, but also not be drawn into a, a sinful lifestyle that that might draw us into. Uh, so again, uh, it's a bit of a difficult portion to make sense of. It kind of reflects the whole book. These are just pieces of wisdom put together, but um, it shows the importance of finding godly men and women to influence you in your life and ultimately finding the greatest influence in the Word of God um, and His wisdom there. Pastor Joel Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. He's been helping us today to study Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this text, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.